It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? It's good. I am in the midst of organizing my life and packing up for a trip. So I'm going to be out for a little bit. Do you think that this podcast is going to fall apart when I leave the country? For how long are you gone? Two weeks. Oh, God. Yeah, totally. No, it's toast. This is it. This might be the last yep. recording. This may be the, the last time we ever talk on the run out um, <laughs> as it as the, you know, it starts to crumble the foundations. <laughs> um, what, will, what will people do without my um, once a week shitty Instagram post on the run out Instagram feed? <laughs> I don't know. All 42 of our followers they will be super bummed. Yeah. I mean, and everyone will miss your whistle groan too, I think. I know. You can't let that go. The, the, yeah. Certainly right. the best part of the show. I promise to try to keep it together while you're gone, which is to say I will ignore it um, until you get back. <laughs> well, so one of the ideas that we uh, one of the ideas that we had to keep it going while in my um, in my absence is to release some bonus material, which you, if you're listening to this, you're going to hear right after this little introduction that we're providing. So, Chris, what is this bonus episode that we are so generously releasing to the public? Um, it's an interview with Carlo Traversi, who uh, we interviewed just after he had done Magic Line and also this fantastic winner that he had climbing over here on the Western Slope doing Flex Luthor. And we talked a bit about gyms because who knew that uh, Carlo Traversi owns a climbing gym? I didn't know that. Did you mm-hmm. know that? I did know that, but I didn't realize quite how much he had his hands in the in the day to day business operations. I just kind of figured he'd be, you know, kind of like the figurehead on the on the business and and let the like the the Sharma climbing model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, he's he's like he's rolled up his sleeves and he's a working stiff, so to speak. So yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, um, and he believes in it. He believes in the mission of what he's doing, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it was a cool episode, and um, I'm glad that we're uh, putting it out, it out to the public to make it heard by uh, more ears. Yeah, well, hopefully our patrons who heard it a couple months ago aren't so uh, you know conservative as to be um, angered by the fact that we are going to share this with the general, <laughs> you know, bottom feeding grubby public out there for free <laughs> um, after they paid their sweet five fourteen to get it. But you know, got to we got to gin up business somehow because. You know, it's either that or we just start talking about training because that yeah. seems to be the money. That's like the money talk out there in podcast world. And in fact, while you're gone, maybe I'll just do like a series of six or seven solo training podcasts where I just talk about training for however long I got. I mean, I can think I of know. no sure way to lose listeners than you <laughs> doing a six run series on training and climbing. <laughs> well, I got my speed bag back here. See it? <laughs> Does anybody ever incorporate speed bag work in their climbing training? That could be my new niche. Yeah. That'll be my like uh my 7 on 53 off like cont- contribution to uh to climbing training is the speed bag warm up. I think um I think if we did um maybe if we reach a certain number of patronage 
patrons that you and Kelly Cordes could box each other. Oh could, shit. I mean, <laughs> if that was your training, if it was like for a, for a, for a fight with Kelly Cordes, I think we would probably be the most successful climbing podcast. Don't you think of all time? Yeah. Like a YouTube pay-per-view type thing where we fucking, yeah. We're, we're, uh, Kelly Cordes kicks my ass like two ways to Friday. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think there's actually quite an audience for that out there, um, I'm afraid. Because people maybe don't know this, but uh, Kelly Cordes was a uh, a Golden Gloves-level uh, collegiate boxer at one point in his life. So do not underestimate that man. No. Yeah, I would never get in the ring with him. Yeah, I mean, I would always think about like him in Alaska and stuff, having him in your corner in one of those shitty bars after uh after <laughs> quite a few weeks out in the out in the mountains is probably a, a nice uh insurance a nice little insurance policy if one of the locals got uppity yeah yeah we don't take kindly to your folk around here what <laughs> yeah and he's not big either so he, i think there's probably plenty of people that underestimate him while he was beating the living shit out of you um <laughs> But he's also a peaceful man, so I don't know if we could get his get his hackles up enough to actually punch me in the face or not. Most good fighters are, Chris. Yeah, yeah. they are. It comes yeah, from peaceful. a place of peace. All oh, right. Yeah, that's how it works. They don't get raged because they know that they could just destroy your life <laughs> with their fists. <laughs> this of is the second. This is the second time in recent months we're talking about fighting on the uh, on the run out. It's true. This has become an increasingly violent podcast. <laughs> yeah i guess we were kind of we thought we would talk a a bit of meta have a meta discussion about the show really just to drum up support for our patreon because we think what we're doing is pretty cool don't you agree chris yeah i mean i i've i've been like you know we set off to sort of reshape the form of climbing podcasts and i think we did a pretty good job and i'm I'm, i was adamant about differentiating it a from the normal cast. Um, and the interesting thing is that, you know, since we started this kind of format with, uh, with different segments and, and things in between, which, um, is a little bit different than the couple forms that are out there in climbing podcasts, like literally since then, like three or four versions of what I do at the normal cast have, have popped up since we mm-hmm. started this thing. So, you know, that format, which I didn't invent, certainly, I don't even think podcasting really invented it, the intro, interview, outro kind of format, um, that that's what we had set out to sort of change. And, um, you know, I, I kind of thought we would sort of get more notice for doing that. You know, we have a loyal fan base, certainly, but it's, I don't know, um, I feel like we're sort of this little voice out here in the crowd saying like, oh, let's try something different and... Um, I don't know. We deserve a little recognition for that. Yeah, I agree. Um, unless if, uh, you know, if we were to just follow what the market forces are telling us, we would just do like a nutrition and training performance podcast. But if anyone has listened to the show for any length of time, they'll know that it's like the weakest content that we can, that we put out anytime we kind of tread into those waters. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, it's just not part of my wheelhouse, but you know, what's your favorite segment that you that we've done recently, Chris, in the last year? If you had to like, I'm kind of putting you on the spot right now, but is there something that comes to mind that really stood out to you? I mean, I think like one of the coolest things we've done, and it was thanks to our guest Jordan Cannon, was having um, Jordan trust us to uh, sort of 
preemptively or or just post his Instagram post about coming out of the closet and announcing himself as a gay man and a gay athlete, gay climbing athlete. And uh, I thought that was pretty special that that Jordan trusted us to do that on our show. That was about a year ago this month, I think. And Jordan's been such a fun and great friend of the show and multiple time guest. And we can always count on him coming through for us when we uh, when we get in touch. That guy's always down to chat. And uh, we've put out some bonus material with Jordan. That's really great as well. So yeah, I, I kind of feel like that was maybe a, a high point of the last year. Yeah, I agree. I think Jordan's like, he's become such a close friend. And, and in some ways, it's through this podcast that he's be, I think we've both been endeared to him at a closer level. Um, I've been in really enjoying all of the final bits that we've been finding and people have been sending in and just kind of speaking to the, you know, the musical talents of the climbing world, but also just some of the other weird stuff that we've pulled in. I don't know if, have you, have we gotten any feedback on any of those? I mean, a, a little bit here and there, but that that's actually like, as you know, because I fucking talk about this all the time, like that is kind of stuck in my craw that that has not been like recognized as something really interesting on yeah. the climbing podcast because I I love them and I love getting them and I love it when they're really weird you know I, I, last episode Jonathan Howland gave us this reading of a, a segment of his book that out of context is really wild I didn't choose it he chose it um it was great that he sent this you know sort of homoerotic section of his climbing novel and I mean unabashedly because he he sort of you know, talks about how one of the themes of his book is this exploration of male friendship. And maybe he, again, that was just this kind of example plopped in the entire novel, but taken out by itself, it, you know, we did get a comment on it. Uh, I, th- I think you saw maybe on the Facebook page about how, how kind of weird it was. Um, and I just love it. Like the weirder, the better um, mm-hmm. as far as that's concerned. But, but also like, yeah, when we get somebody who's like truly talented, yeah, I, I don't know why I, I feel like that whole thing kind of like we dropped it and I think our listeners love it, but it, it sort of didn't get any critical acclaim. And I think it's just, I don't know, I think it was just a really, uh, it's just a really nice segment to highlight what's going on in the climbing community. Yeah. And I think that it, I feel fine calling attention to this because we're not congratulating ourselves. It's like we're, we're just trying to put the spotlight on all the talented people out there in the climbing world. Yeah, and that, and you know, I think it's it's easy to remember that um, it's such an eclectic group of people. But you know, when we start joking about how we ever do is talk about climbing, and and we forget how talented some of these folks are, and um, you, we see it, you know, when you're at the crag. That's kind of what made me think of it is is people like Mason Earl that I, I got to know years ago, and is just this prodigy music talent um, that you know, anytime he whipped out an instrument, people just drop their jaws, you know? And, uh, and th- that's not like an uncommon thing in climbing. And so that was kind of the basis of it in my head is just to show that off and give everybody this treat that would just happen around a campfire once in a while or something like that. So that's our pitch uh, to you guys. You can go to patreon.com slash podcast. And I think it's $5 and 14 cents a month. You can uh, get bonus content and also just support the show and support what we're doing. Now, Chris, I think we should set our some goals for us. I think that you've already committed to uh, fighting Kelly Cordes if we reach, what, 500 new patrons? Yeah, that absolutely is the case. Um, 
or I could do that I will not release six consecutive episodes of training <laughs> information uh, if we reach 500. If we don't get there, I I'm going to do it. I swear to God, I will sit down here for an hour per episode and talk about my interface with training. So yeah, don't make me do it. Wow. Okay. So this is a, that's a double-edged threat right there. It's, it's incentive. That's a stick and a carrot wrapped up in one. <laughs> I'd need a bigger charity. I'd need a bigger charity cause to fight Kelly Cordes. We'd have to go really big for that. Um, if you can think of something cool, um, where we could raise some money for, for a serious cause, then, uh, you know, get back to me, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the referee. <laughs> take, yeah. Okay. It'd take a lot. <laughs> So before we go, where are you going? You're, you're leaving for two weeks. I'm leaving for two weeks. And unfortunately, Chris, I can't tell you where I'm going. <laughs> you can't tell me or you can't tell our listeners. I can't tell anyone. Oh, really? I don't I actually, that... I don't even know where I'm going. I've just got my you're bags going... packed and a ticket somewhere. <laughs> Somebody sent you a ticket. Um, are you going on an anthropological journey to... Uh, to Barefoot Charles's cave. <laughs> I'm going to seek the elusive Barefoot Charles in the forest of Fontainebleau. <laughs> Carlo Traversi is a gym owner and one of the top five best climbers in the world, at least according to the runout. Tell us about uh, Magic Line. Like, what was the process for you, and how did you, how long did you work on it? And just give us the the rundown. I first tried it in, I think it was the winter of 2016. I had come out to Yosemite when I was living in Colorado, and I wanted to do Meltdown, um, which is the other difficult crack line that uh, Beth Rodden put up. And when I got there, uh, Meltdown was pretty wet. It was kind of iced over and the waterfall was running more than I thought it would. So I was kind of looking for like a secondary project. And this guy, Tom Mullen, um, invited me to come try Magic Line with him. And I'd, I'd never been up there before. And he was getting decently close to it, actually, and was giving it lead attempts um, my first day up there. So I went up with him um, and kind of started trying it with him. And incidentally, he was like, you should try and you should try and just onsite it, man. I think you could just onsite it, like place the gear, you know, just go for it or whatever. And I was like, all right, man, I don't know about that, but like, I'll watch you on it and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there, you know? And so first, first go up it, he actually ripped two pieces and then decked, um, like just, <laughs> just above like the low crux. And I was like, immediately, like, I'm good on like, the onsite. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, nope, dude, I'm going to get on the top rope and I'm going to figure everything out and make sure it's all good. Like not going to be trying to onsite this thing. And luckily, I mean, he was totally okay. At, like, you know, ripped two pieces. He was a little bit bruised, but like, um, it was, it wasn't like, you know, anything super, super heinous deck or anything like that. And obviously he was not injured, but it was just kind of like a funny start to, uh, <laughs> start to me trying did, the line. Did he do the <laughs> thing where he stood up and went, I meant to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been class. That would have been classic. <laughs> no, he, he was definitely like shaken up, you know, and like he kind of stood up and I was like, I was like looking to make sure like no bones were sticking out or anything crazy. And we were both just kind of like, it looks like you're okay. And he's like, I think I'm okay. And I'm like, I think you're okay too. Like how you feeling? Like whatever. And just kind of that back and forth to make sure it was all good. And um, yeah, and it was, you know, I was like, okay, now I'm going to top rope for the rest of the day. So <laughs> I tried it on top rope. I think 
I think I, I think I TR'd it clean, like maybe on my second or third TR burn. So it was pretty quick. And I was like, okay, this feels more manageable than meltdown. And then I started sorting the gear probably the next day. And then I think probably by the third day, I started giving it lead tries. And I think my, my fifth day on it that year, I fell off the, the last move. So it was in December, 2016. And yeah, like there's a, there's a clip from bear cam where I'm like, basically standing up on the last smear and the smear kind of pops off and took a pretty good ride. And then shortly after that, it, uh, it started snowing and, um, getting really, really wet up there. And I kind of put it on the back burner and didn't really try it. Went back to Colorado. And then I moved out here in 2017 and to California to open up a climbing gym. And then, um, that next year meltdown was dry. So I started trying that again, instead of going back up to magic line. And then um, and then I didn't really get back up on magic line. I went up a few times just to kind of test it out over the years, but then it wasn't until this year really where Tommy Caldwell reached out to me and he was looking for a partner on it. I had some time in late February here. And so I kind of teamed up with him to kind of take it on and try and finish the job. That was, that was kind of the, at least the trajectory of effort. Between the two magic line and, and meltdown, do you have a, a favorite one? It seems like you kind of, was it just the weather that made you focus on doing meltdown first or or did you just like the route more meltdown just felt so impossible to start with it felt like i just couldn't believe it had been climbed really because of how difficult it felt on my initial efforts and that that was really alluring to me as as like a climb i think it's really it that's like my favorite thing to do in climbing is find things that feel just completely absurdly impossible and then somehow within the progression of like solving them like you can kind of make them feel very doable and, and almost easy um, by perfecting the little beta and like all the little tricks and all that. And I'd say magic line always felt really doable to me. It just felt like I had to like put the time in to like complete it. Um, and meltdown was a little bit more alluring just because of how impossible it felt early on. So I'd say I like both of them in different ways. Um, I try not to like pick and choose one or the other, you know, in terms of or really anything I do in climbing, they're all, they all teach different lessons. They all have different you know, positives and negatives to them. So um, it was more of a weather thing that got me going to, to, to magic line. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was psyched to do both, obviously. You were doing a second ascent of, um, of meltdown. And, and the interesting thing about your second ascent is that I think it added a lot to the sort of legend and the history of that route um, in a way that coming and firing a second ascent of something, you know, soon after it was done, just didn't. Like, I feel like, your second ascent just bolstered the the sort of legend of what Beth did because because of its time afterwards and also you know because of the difficulty you had with it um, you didn't just come and crush it um, and so it's yeah. just I think it just you know venerates how well Beth was climbing at the time and what her vision was in a way that you know doing what you did on meltdown is just another sort of personal thing versus a historical thing totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that Beth's ascent of meltdown is still one of the most underappreciated accomplishments in, in climbing. And I, I tell her that all the time. Um, and she doesn't believe me. She just thinks like, she like, oh, you kind of cruised it. It didn't look that bad. And I'm like, no, this this was very hard. Like, you got to like, <laughs> you got to understand like your ability, her abilities in 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 that technical style um, and, and really powerful technical Yosemite style is is kind of unprecedented in my in my opinion. and. You know, I think that that ascent, you know, it, 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 it's amazing. Like it really is. And, and I think not many people realize it until 
they go try it. And it, it, it's hard to, because when you do it well, it looks easy. Um, but the, all the other times you're just not doing anything. You're just sitting on the end of the rope. Well, you did magic line, um, just on TR fairly quickly. And it sounds like meltdown. You kind of got your ass kicked for a while before you could piece it together. Um, but they're both given the same grade. And I know that like grades can be really fickle and, uh, you know, lots of like some roots of one grade can feel easy to you and some can feel really hard, but do you think those grades are accurate? Um, and do you want to speculate on what you think they should be if not? I mean, if, if I were to grade it purely just off of like my experience now, I'd say that meltdown's probably more on the 14 B end of the scale. If it were like, if it were a bolted sport route, it, it could, it could be 14 D potentially. And meltdown or sorry, magic line is probably on the easier end of of 14 C potentially 14 B. I felt like TRing it on magic line felt closer to like 13 D maybe 14 a. And I think that that's probably similar to what the pink point would probably be like, because it wouldn't be that bad to let go and clip. It's just fiddling in gear takes a lot more extra effort. And then, you know, I mean, that, I mean, hopefully that kind of gives like an, an okay indication of where things are at. Like I said, that's my personal experience with it. And I, I just, I try and take grades with a grain of salt in that way. It's like, you know, I may have had one experience with it, but we really can only know what things are graded after, you know, there's potentially 10 repeaters um, or more. So, you know, your evolution, you know, in my, in my brain, right. And this could be wrong. It's just, you know, the media that gets into my head at, you know, you you kind of made a name for yourself as a boulderer and a sport climber, and then you've been transitioning to these gear climbs. Um, but what you know, what built up to that, and and or was it always there? And then, you know, question B is that is what did you bring from those other disciplines to do these these hard gear routes? You know, that you're basically approaching in a lot of ways like sport climbs. I I, I guess most people may not know, but I grew up like basically trad climbing in Yosemite. Um, I mean, my first trips to, to Yosemite were for trad climbing in the summertime and climbing on like five sevens and five eights and things like that. And so I kind of had an early history of trad climbing, but Mm -hmm. you know, I I liked all climbing early on. I was into all of it, bouldering, sport climbing, trad climbing. I pretty much just whatever type of climbing I could get my hands on. I was, I was stoked about it. And you know, I may have delved pretty deep into bouldering for a number of years, especially my first years in Colorado, but I kind of always saw myself in the way that like, I want to be able to, to try it all. And just bouldering tends to be the best background to have to really push yourself in, in all realms of climbing. So um, I think once I reached a certain level in bouldering and started to get a little bit bored with that progression, um, it only made sense to start applying those strengths to other things like sport climbing and trad climbing. And hard trad has been the most fun because it's, strategic like sport climbing but there's an also an extra fear factor and it's just like it just requires a lot more from you um like a lot more precision a lot more perfection a lot more of everything and um i definitely think that it it's like important that i got into you know bouldering when i did and and kind of took it to the limit and continue to take it to whatever limits i can because it's really the only way to push the limits of hard trad climbing is, is to have that bouldering background yeah so carla we were kind of joking right before we started recording about how you know you're kind of busy with your gym running your gym business but 
you just seem like you're climbing at a really high level right now. So, um, yeah, you claimed, know. you actually sort of claimed that, you know, climbing, had sort of taken this backseat to like your business and things. And I'm just like, you're having a pretty good year, dude. So yeah, <laughs> maybe you should backseat it a little further and you could maybe climb harder. I mean, maybe totally. that's just, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, maybe this just speaks to, um, when you, you know, are climbing V15 and V16 that, you know, 14d trad it just isn't is, is kind of like a weekend warrior level grade project but but yeah yeah I, what's I am, going on are you why do you feel like you're climbing well and um what's what's your secret to your success right now i feel like i'm, I'm climbing well i'm not climbing as well as i want to be and i think that's kind of always the case I, I feel like i hold myself to probably too high of a standard in terms of like what i want to be doing on a yearly basis my list of goals tends to be much much larger than what i can accomplish and you know, even like I look at the the fortress trip as a success in some ways, but also a failure in other ways. There was other things that I wanted to do on that trip outside of just climbing flex. I mean, it was kind of like flex took longer than I expected it to, but there were projects up there that I wanted to finish bolting. And, um, you know, there were projects that I've bolted in the past that I wanted to get on and, and spend more time on. And, you know, even with this trip to the Valley, it was like magic line was one on a list of probably 10 projects that I've been working throughout the whole previous seasons. Yeah, doing one of them is great, you know, but there's other bouldering projects I was working on throughout um, throughout the fall that, um, you know, I did one of them, but unfortunately, a few of the others that I was working on just didn't happen this year. And, you know, it's kind of always like that. I, I, I probably end up trying too many things um, and, you know, not leaving enough space for, you know, me to kind of celebrate the, the little the little things that I'm stoked on. Well, I was going to break it to you that this weekend I went up and climbed a couple of those things you bolted at the fortress. So um, <laughs> I didn't want you, I didn't want you to find that, find out this way, but um, I just went ahead and did it. So um, sorry. That's awesome. That. I didn't see any tags or anything, you know, they look doable. So <laughs> there were there were no tags man and i'm stoked to hear that someone did them for sure that's yeah, yeah, awesome. cool i thought like that one on the left was like i don't know 12d 13a and then the one in the middle maybe a little harder <laughs> that's awesome man. <laughs> when you, you you were talking about how you were climbing with tommy on uh magic line uh, over the last uh, month or so did you talk about flex with tommy and was he curious about your your experience with that yeah, I mean, actually, that was one of my favorite parts about going and climbing with him on Magic Line is that I was kind of fresh off of spending a bunch of time at the Fortress. And we got to just like chat about Fortress stories and exchange like cool, you know, bits of information and information from the route. It was it was super fun to just like compare and contrast our experiences. And I, I always joke that like I'm kind of trying to repeat all the things that Tommy did in his early 20s, you know, and I'm in my early 30s. So it's like, I feel like I'm just trying to catch up to what Tommy was accomplishing back then in some ways, you know. So it, it was just, it was, a, it was a good period of time to be able to like, yeah, share all that stuff with him and, you know, talk about beta on the route, talk about whatever our, our experiences were, you know, bolting up there, spending a lot of time up there. And they were, there were a lot of similarities, a lot of differences, but yeah, it was just fun to be able to like share that time with him in that regard. So, and also learning from him on magic line. I mean, he is an absolute granite wizard. And I think that we both were able to like share different techniques with each other. And I definitely absorbed a lot from him in terms of how he goes about, you know, uh, projecting those things and how he kind of utilizes his feet and the features on the wall and stuff. It was it was a great learning experience for me. And I, I love that. I love that experience of climbing with other people and absorbing, you know, the things that they have and the things that they have are good at, you know, in climbing. So I enjoyed it. 
I'm sure you've heard just uh, speculation about how the Flex Luther's changed over the years with the Chaucy Rock that's up at the Fortress. And what was your sense on how close what you did um, this last year was to what Tommy did 20, however many years ago, 15 years ago? I've been asked this a lot, obviously, and I feel like um, I have a pretty good understanding based on my communications with Tommy about where things are at. But I think it was maybe five or six years ago that John Cardwell and I finally pushed basically through the midsection of flex. And we were the first people to get to the anchor after Tommy had climbed it. So we, I feel like we have a pretty good awareness of what state the route was in, you know, as the first people to make it all the way to the top after that, I'd say there, there was loose rock. A lot of things broke, but it was nothing of, um, of consequence to the route. I think that what uh, Maddie and I climbed is, is fairly close to probably what Tommy climbed. That being said, I do think that we found some better beta in certain sections that made things slightly easier, maybe. And then I also feel like, you know, there might have been some footholds or other things that broke that might have made things slightly harder. It's impossible to completely compare, obviously, with that much time in between. But I do really feel like the route is fairly similar to to what Tommy accomplished, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, in my opinion. Um, And, you know, there's still loose rock on there. Like if you trend right or left from the line, you're going to break footholds, you're going to break stuff, but it's nothing that you're really needing to use to to climb the route successfully so yeah i mean that's just the nature of the rock up there the area you need should be cleaned up but you'll spend your whole life trying to clean the whole cliff up um i mean we should mention too that that carla you did the third ascent um eddie hong actually snagged the second you know you guys working together a lot up there and again we've got this huge span of time like what what is it like 18, 16, 17 years between the first ascent and, and you guys doing the second and third or something like that? Yeah, I think it was early, what was it, 2002 or early 2003 that he did it? Right. Something like that. Right. So yeah, like yeah. a pretty big span of time there. Yeah. Yeah. And partially, I mean, it's it's a little bit of, of obscure land. You know, it's over here on the western slope of Colorado. Um, it's famous for, you know, having a, a long approach for sport climbing. Um, although it's funny because I think the sort of tolerance or gauge for that has changed as we've bolted all the rock that's right there next to your car and, and moved off into other lands like an hour uphill is used to seem like it was like just out of control and people you know rolled their eyes at at tommy and the whole gang climbing up there but now it's i think within the realm of what people consider normal um but yeah just the fact that it was not on say use or something like that probably yeah, yeah. helped help drop it into obscurity but what um you know at what point did you guys you know, and, and and it sounds like um, Cardwell was in on this too. At what point did you guys sort of revive this idea of go, of the fortress being this place to, um, you know, to go find these hard climbs and and get after it? it? Sounds like maybe about seven eight years ago. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was right after I did Kryptonite, and I was just like, man, I really love spending time up here. It's 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 kind of off on its own. It's kind of this massive cave. The rock is generally pretty good if you if you know how to clean pretty well and you're willing to spend the time cleaning and. I, I just enjoy work in that regard, you know, like I'm not there to just climb on the same things that everyone's climbing on all day. And just like, I, like I enjoy the work element of it, you know, I mean, I hike further for boulders most of the time to, to you know, than an hour, you know, hiking with like a sport climbing pack an hour uphill is like, is actually seems pretty casual to me for the most part. So the hike never deterred me in that regard, but I just like things that are a little bit more like out there and require more effort. and. They just feel more rewarding, you know, when you spend more time out with them and, um, 
you know, the sends are more rewarding in certain ways because they just require a lot more effort on the front end. So, and I mean, I've just spent so many good days at the fortress now. It's such a, such an amazing crew of people. I mean, John and I went out there bolting in the middle of winter, you know, like back in the day. And I mean, we had some, some insane stuff happened to us. Like we, we post hold up there. It took us three hours one day. We were trying to bolt an extension to kryptonite. And I was trying to get to the top of the cliff. So we brought up like 350 feet of rope in a haul bag, post hold for three hours to the base of the cliff. And it was, you know, very, very, very snowy up there and kind of wet. And I tried to go around and, and, and get to the top of the cliff. And it took me probably another two to three hours to get close to the top of kryptonite. And I got caught in like a little mini avalanche essentially and slid all the way down to the the edge of the cliff in this like, you know, this, this snow slide caught myself on a tree. Luckily there was enough trees and bushes up there and, you know, pulled the static line out, slung it around the tree and like wrapped out. And, you know, it was like things like that is like, man, this is just a cool place to be able to like explore and, and feel like you're kind of out on your own and, and kind of doing your own thing here. So I've always enjoyed that aspect of the cliff and, um, you know, uh, taking things that are maybe people don't realize are gems, you know, like, and then kind of polishing up them up and, and, you know, making them up into something that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I like it up there too. And, um, I haven't been able to get up there as much in the last few years due to, uh, my ongoing injury called a five-year-old, but, um, the, I mean, it's funny how some things that are in the sort of deterrent list for a lot of people, if you have this different mindset can be this feature. And like I said, the, the, the distance up there, the solitude, and even like just having to kind of deal with the vagaries of loose rock and, you know, all that stuff for me, like can be a feature. It can be like part of a way that makes, you know, what everybody's like, oh, it's sport climbing and, and you're like, well, yeah, but it's also kind of like rad up there and like feels spooky when yeah. you're on these creaky holds and you got to tune your sort of vibe into the, into these things that most people think are detractions and you find kind of fun and joy in them. And I think the fortress is a classic place like that. It's very classic Western slope um, with all that stuff going on up there. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you kind of just cultivate a distinct appreciation for Choss, you know, and yeah. <laughs> Like, I, I don't know, as I've gotten older, I feel like that, that appreciation continues to grow <laughs> in some way or another. So. <laughs> well, we need people like you and we have a few of them on the Western <laughs> slope that just, they're, they're like these Choss artists, you know, um, that, that have, you know, open up cliffs now here that people walk, have walked by for 25 years and been like, that's garbage. And they walk in and, and, and turn it into a cliff. And I mean, Dave Pegg was, was a perfect example of that when he was developing up, you know, down below the fortress and even up at the fortress um, of this person who was like, you know, I'm going to go and develop that. And he created these amazing cliffs that now exist as like beacons here on the Western slope when everybody else just walked by them over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. And those cliffs are packed. I mean, every day I was hiking oh, yeah. up to the fortress, the, the parking lot was packed. People are down at those lower cliffs all day long. Mm -hmm. And I was always blown away because I was like, man, the fortress, I feel like the fortress is like better, even though it's like, I know it's like a lot harder climbing and stuff and it's yeah. a lot further walk, but I'm like, how can so many people just be climbing down here, but no one wants to venture like up, up to the fortress. I would never saw another person up there, you know? Go back to your first reason. Um, is there really a problem <laughs> up there? I mean, there's right, like right. what, like two okay 511s and a couple terrifying ones. <laughs> Yeah, although Met Metropolis is probably one of the better 512s yeah. I've ever climbed, I would say. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. 
Carla, you're in a unique position, um, not just as a pro climber, but also as a gym owner, and uh, want to get your take on the state of that industry in that world. Over the last couple of years, you know, COVID was like a big part of the the gym story, and I think a lot of gyms took a hit with those restrictions, especially being out in California. It sounds like it was maybe more uh, restrictive there than it than most places. Um, and then also uh, the other theme or thread has been the Olympics and that effect on um, just the sort of impending boom of people psyched on climbing and wanting to get into the gym and experience it for themselves. So let, I'd just love to hear your take on what the state of the gym world is regarding those two things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, COVID was obviously terrible, especially for California gyms. We were closed for 10 months out of 12. so it's a pretty significant chunk of time to, to not be able to operate. And, you know, the bills were still there. So having no revenue coming in and then still paying bills is, is, uh, uh, you know, you dig yourself into a hole for sure. And I think the hope is always that there'll be this opportunity at the end of the tunnel to like dig yourself out of that. I think we were lucky with, you know, the timing of the Olympics and, you know, climbing, making its debut and, in getting more people in the gym, we've definitely seen like a bump in the amount of people that are coming in. I, I wouldn't say it's quite as significant as maybe I was expecting, but it may just be like our location in terms of like this city that may not see it as much as some other cities that may be a little bit more like focused on those things. But, you know, we've seen, we've seen the bump for sure. And, you know, I'm happy that we were able to survive COVID. I'm happy that, you know, a lot of our same employees were able to come back and that they weren't too negatively affected by all this as well. And, you know, just happy to now be here still for the community. I feel like we've, we've developed a really good community of, of people here. And, you know, I think we have a good culture here at our gym. And, and it's, it's cool to kind of lead the charge in that regard. I mean, that was always the, the reason why I wanted to start a gym in the first place is because I grew up in climbing gyms. I was in climbing gyms, working in them for, you know, close to 20 years before I, I was able to open my own facility. And I think I was really, really lucky to have the opportunity to be to do that and really grateful to have the opportunity to do that. And I just really wanted to create a, a location and, and uh, an environment where people can be successful as a climber and can get into climbing and and also, you know, have this like knowledge center where people can can get into climbing and then also be able to to learn a lot about what the community is and the support of the community and and how to treat the outdoors with respect if they do decide to venture outdoors and then just how to be like a positive member of of your local community and i think more than most other sports i think climbing really fosters that in a great way so i felt like you know opening the climbing gym is is it's not just a business i think it's also creates like a community center in a lot of ways so and i really appreciate that aspect i mean a huge focus of of my daily work is just making sure that we're continuing to support the community directly here as, as best as possible and making sure that, you know, we're kind of ready to accept new people with open arms and we have the best resources possible to accept those people. So. You know, there's that um, thread about, you know, the gym to crag culture and education and so forth. A lot of people are just kind of worried that there's going to be this explosion of um, gym people on our crags who don't know what they're doing. And so I don't, I, I, I've kind of never really known exactly how to, you know, litigate how seriously to take that thread. Like, you know, you can kind of like pick, uh, pick and choose your examples and make, you know, one person who acts poorly is like the sort of pariah or just a representative of an entire group of people. But 
Um, what's your take on that? I think that there is some truth to it for sure. I've taught Jim to crag classes at gyms for, you know, close to a decade. I used to travel around to different climbing gyms in the country and teach these gym to crag classes. And, you know, we also try and do our best to, to inform our members as best as possible about how to interact in the outdoors. We did a survey just before COVID to try and figure out how many of our members are climbing outside. And it's, it's honestly like 15%, I think, of, of the climbers that climb here are climbing outdoors with any sort of frequency. And that was a lot smaller number than I thought. And maybe it's just specific to, you know, Sacramento. And I think that that can increase in the future um, and it will increase. And, you know, we'll obviously be looking for ways to make sure that when they do venture outside that they're doing so in the most responsible manner. But I think in some ways it's a little bit overblown, but I don't think it's like everybody's going outside just acting like assholes, you know, because they've never known how to be in the outdoors. Most people seem to be pretty self-aware. I think that the issue comes with pure numbers arriving. And we've seen that in places like Bishop during the wintertime. It, it really is like an insane amount of people in one area. And I think that just having that amount of people, even if they're all acting as respectably, you know, as possible can create some issues, you know, people not having places to park or not walking on the correct trails or even landing areas just slowly expanding into the sagebrush, um, you know, creating issues in that regard. So I, I think in some capacities, it is a little bit overblown because, you know, the areas are so spread out and there's so many different areas that everyone just kind of like tends to fan out and it, it, it doesn't become a problem. But I definitely feel like with examples such as Bishop, you know, you get basically all of the Bay Area, all of LA just converging on this very small town and, and kind of a, uh, I guess, a resource that isn't quite equipped to, to handle that amount of people. Uh, and I think in that regard, yeah, I think it is it is uh, a concern and it's a concern of mine. I think it's a concern of many people's. Yeah, and it's interesting because, and we've mentioned this on the show for various aspects, but we've got these, it's like we have these two years of data that's completely messed up, you know, because of COVID. Yeah. And so it's hard to attribute. Um, I mean, even with you talking about like seeing a bump after the Olympics, it's, you know, it's like hard to even parse out what was just opening of COVID bump you know it's like restrictions are getting loosened so we're seeing more people people are less gripped they're coming out that happened to coincide with the olympics so it's even that statistics like how do we know which one's which and i think every part of the outdoors had that huge weird bump in the 2020 where it just felt like everybody was like off work and so they were in a van out climbing. And so it's like, do you know what I mean? Like there was this trend where climbing is getting more popular, but the last couple of years are like a hard thing to, to put into like that trend because it was such a weird couple of years. And I even feel like this winter, just anecdotally as a climber, it's all, I, I feel like it actually will, has dropped off from last year a little bit. Um, as far as the kind of crowds I've, I saw this last summer versus, versus 2020 and in, in, in the fall versus 2020. So just just like food for thought totally. on trying to like parse out what that Jim DeCrag thing is, what the Olympics did. It's like, yeah, it's easy to just, again, just go and can't you can't find parking at one area one day and you're just like, ah, it's all fucked in these fucking gym climbers. You know what I mean? Like, and just totally. be like, it's done. And that's, you know, so it's funny. It's funny to even talk about it because it's, you know, you need a couple of years to look back on before anything makes yeah. any sense as far as that's concerned. For sure. And, you know, I see a surprising amount of, or I talk to a surprising amount of people in the gym, you know, even here or elsewhere that 
they have no intention of climbing outside. They love climbing in the gym. They come in the gym almost every day and they really don't care and have no intention of ever climbing outside. And, and that blows my mind as someone that kind of grew up climbing outdoors, but I also get it. It's like, it's, it's, it's its own thing now. It's its own whole deal. You know, everything's comfortable. It's easy. You got, you know, we've got coffee and beer here, you know, like you've got a patio, you can hang out with your friends. It's all just simple. And I can understand why you don't want to go outside on sharp chossy rock and, you know, get destroyed by some sandbag boulder. You know, it's like, I, I get it. So, um, I think that that's one of the more surprising things for me though, is that people sometimes overblow the gym to crag situation that like, Oh, of course, everybody that starts climbing the gym is eventually just going to make their way outside. But that's not necessarily the case, you know? And, and I'd say it's more often than not that that, that is how it is, is that people just are stoked on what the climbing gym offers. And, and that's, that's just kind of what they're going to be is, is, is a climber in the gym. So, well, it's also just such a easy thing to fit into your, normal everyday life versus going rock climbing outdoors, you know, walking for sure. in for two hours. And yeah, it's, it, and we also, again, coming from a background where we always climbed outdoors, we don't kind of make as big of a, a leap to how difficult it is to, to become and spend any real time as an outdoor climber. And in Sacramento too, you know, involves traveling um, at least a, a ways. And yeah, it's just a whole different thing. And it's made me, having a kid has made me realize that of how difficult you know, just this outdoor climbing lifestyle is if you have um, any sort of family or job or anything else. And luckily for gym owners and, and people who realize what they're getting into is that's the case is you have this whole demographic because I've, I've pointed out many times that the original gyms in the 90s were, you know, were mistakenly built for climbers. And it's like, yeah, yeah that's not a good financial decision to base your economic rev or your base your revenue on trying to get climbers to give you money. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, the modern gym is like, no, 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 we're not about those people. We're about these other folks. Um, you know, totally. And I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's just more accessible in that way. I mean, I find myself nowadays really reflecting on how incredibly privileged I am to have the time and the resources to be able to go climbing outside as much as I do. And I think that, that, you know, both of those things are extremely important to be able to go do that. I mean, for me to go climbing and I go climbing in the Valley throughout the winter, you know, once or twice a week and, um, in Yosemite. And it's like, I'm like, wow, I don't know if this is going to be able to continue for the long run, but I'm going to, I'm incredibly grateful that I, you know, like I said, I have, the time and money to be able to commit to doing that right now. And I try and take advantage as much as possible, but that's not the case for most people. You know, it's like they're working their nine to five or working potentially more than that every day to just make ends meet. And, and they're lucky to be able to put the money that they can into a, a gym membership and be able to climb with their friends after they're done working and stuff, but it, it doesn't allow them the, the ability to be able to get out. So I think that when I say like, you know, most people don't want to go out climbing it, a lot of it may not just be a want. It may just not be like possible for them in terms of, you know, what they're, what they're willing to work into their schedule or, or even just with, you know, what they're afforded. What's the state of affairs with the professional climbing profession or industry at the moment? Is, is that something that you want to continue doing? I mean, you've got this other business now that you're working on. Do you see yourself being a, you know, quote unquote, professional climber for a long time and maybe just I'd love to hear your thoughts, just reflecting on how that's kind of changed over the past 15 years that you've been doing this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I always, 
I feel like I accidentally became a professional climber in some ways. Like I didn't ever think that would be like a possibility for me really early on. And I kind of accidentally feel like I fell into that role. And I'm incredibly grateful that it was able to happen. I was able to travel to a lot of cool places um, and climb a lot of great things that I would have never had the ability to be able to do. So that support's been amazing throughout most of my climbing career. Um, I still really enjoy that aspect of my job. I've got a really close relationship with Black Diamond in terms of product, in terms of events, um, different community things that we work on. And I, I enjoy that aspect of my job for sure. It feels like I can have an effect on the climbing world in a different way than, than you know, just what, what my job here at the gym does. And, you know, I, I enjoy working with the people, you know, at, at those companies. So like, I'd, I'd consider a lot of the people that work at Black Diamond to be good friends of mine. And, you know, I, I enjoy supporting what they're working on as well as, as a climber with, with, you know, whatever expertise I can kind of offer. So I don't, you know, view it as just like, okay, like you're climbing at this level. Now you should get free shit. It's, it's always been about this exchange between, you know, what you can offer in terms of work and other things. And, I, I don't see it as like, you know, like, oh, I'm climbing at this level. So I should, you know, I should be getting free gear and I should be getting this and this. It's more like, you know, okay, you know, like I have this level of experience in climbing. Now, what can I do to, to benefit this company in, in whatever ways in terms of feedback on, on gear that I'm using or whether it's um, supporting them by showing up at events or, um, you know, doing work really you know just the work that's necessary to keep you know those companies going so yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that sense where it's not this selfish thing and it's not about you and your career and in some ways i think that speaks to this thing that i think chris and i've both noticed about just how i mean you're like one of easily one of the best climbers in the world and your resume over the last year is really just bolstered that status but I, I would guess that if most people were to come up with a list of like the five best climbers in the world you your name probably wouldn't be on that list um so i think people don't necessarily think i don't, I don't mean that to sound weird but i i don't think people necessarily <laughs> think of you top of mind as 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 good a climber as you actually are and, and deserve uh that recognition for and I think well, it's just well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's from what I'm just to tie it back in, I think it sounds like you're, you approach the profession not as like this me first thing where it's all about, you know, spraying about yourself on Instagram and tagging your sponsors. And, and you know, that's your punching the clock for the nine to five for the professional climber, but more about doing events and working with people and, you know, coming up with ideas for the ways to just interact with the climbing world it absolutely pains me to, to market myself at this point in my life. You know, maybe I had an easier time doing it in my early twenties, but at this point it's like, if I could just retreat and not, you know, like talk about what I'm doing or whatever, I'd be totally okay with that. I don't people, I don't need people to know what I'm working on or what I'm, what I'm doing as a climber um, to, to feel important, you know, in this world or, or feel some sense of like, you know, like, yeah, like importance, I guess. Um, so that aspect of it, for sure, like, yeah, I don't, I just don't see myself in that light, you know, and I've never marketed myself in that way. And I, I have no intention of marketing myself, myself in that way. And I really don't care about being included in the best climber conversation in any regard, best boulder or whatever that, that has nothing to do with what I'm trying to do as a climber, as a person, you know, on this planet. It's, it's more just like, if I can inspire somebody to, you know, to, to push a little bit harder in what they're working on, whether it's climbing or something else that they're doing and just try and help them kind of like, uh, you know, create those, you know, 
those stepping stones to get where they want to go. I think that that's the best thing you can possibly do. So showing people that they can manage, you know, working at a gym and doing other things, but then also pursue, you know, their personal dreams in terms of climbing and stuff, I think is a, is a good example to set for sure. Well, it's okay because we're going to care, care about your ranking for you. So you've got us here. <laughs> we're we're going to go on a, a massive PR campaign to try to get you in the top five <laughs> and take a please, national please survey. Don't. <laughs> please don't. Please don't. Oh, don't worry. It's, it's, only, it's only for our it's podcast download numbers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to say, I have a, I have a, I have a really hard time with where social media has gone in that regard too. You know, it, Every time something new comes out in terms of like what people are doing on social media, it's kind of like, I, I always have to take like this deep breath and be like, okay, like, am I going to, am I going to start doing these TikTok. TikTok reels or like, am I going to start doing this? Like it's, it's painful, man. I, I, you know, like I honestly, I enjoyed those, I enjoyed those years of like blogs and stuff where it was a little bit more long form story stuff and things, you know, and now it's just like. Like, I know that that stuff is totally just old school now, but um, I have a hard time with it. I have a hard time with the new social media stuff. And I think that there's some great qualities to it. You know, I think it obviously, it's it's cool to be able to see all these new things and all these crazy stuff kids are doing in the gyms and, you know, even crazy moves people do outside and stuff and these short form videos and stuff. I find it really inspiring. I like it, but I just have a hard time cranking out that style of content and, and continuing to do it. And I try to, for my sponsors, I try to, because I think people do enjoy it to some degree, but um, it does, it does pain me on some level to, to, to continue to keep up with it. I'm always working to kind of earn my keep no matter what, like, and being valuable in more ways than just like, you know, my resume, essentially, you know, it's like, I'm not just going to sit here and like rest on the things that I have done. Like I'm always trying to, 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 to do more for, for everybody to make everyone's job easier at black diamond to make everyone's job easier here at the gym, you know, just trying to whatever I can do to provide for that. I mean, I think that I reached a point in my mid to late twenties where I was basically, I had like a four or five year stint where I was basically just traveling the world, climbing, trying to do the hardest things. And I got to the end of that and I just was entirely unfulfilled. You know, I had climbed some of the hardest boulders in the world, um, had the opportunity to try some of the hardest things out there at the time. And I, I felt like I had reached a point where I was like, if I spend enough time on these things, I can and will do them no matter what. But where is that going to end? You know, like, w- am I just going to keep chasing that thing over and over and over again? Like, okay, the new hardest thing came up or I put up the new hardest thing. And then is it going to get downgraded? Is it going to get upgraded? What are people going to think about? It? And it's, you just get caught in this endless loop of just like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And it's always just about what, I'm doing or what, you know, the next person is doing. It's this, it's just, it feels really, really selfish in that regard. And I think that there's nothing wrong with pursuing those things, but I think it's important to have balance in your life in terms of what you're contributing back to the people around you and, and how you're using your experience and your, your capabilities as a, as a climber or as a person or, or whatever you've kind of cultivated in terms of your experience to, to help benefit the people around you. And, I felt like the, the climbing gym was probably the best way that I could creating a climbing gym and a space for people to develop in that regard was one of the best ways I could apply my skill set. 
And, and that's why, I, you know, that's why I built the Boulder Field. It's a message cool. that would get no traction on TikTok. <laughs> that's okay, man. That's okay. It's too long. You got cut off at the 15 second mark or whatever. And <laughs> there was nothing interesting with that. <laughs> well, imagine a world where in, in 15 years, people are like, God, remember, I'm, I'm really more of a TikTok guy. Remember when you had a whole 15 seconds to like tell the world what you needed? And now it's down to like a half a second or whatever. Like if the evolution continues. <laughs> to where it's just like I, a, I gotta, a one I, word blinked on the screen and you're like too long totally totally i gotta say though it's funny that we talk about that in terms of attention span because we're on here you know on like you know whatever like an hour podcast or whatever and it's interesting that it's either you've got 15 to 60 seconds to get your message across or people are listening to like I listen to like three hour podcasts and they're like entertaining and enjoyable and stuff. And I mean, I've got to hand it to you guys as well. You know, like you've done an incredible job creating a podcast that's, you know, that's easily digestible with that length. You know, it's something that's entertaining for everybody. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of podcast creators out there. I mean, I'd, I'd say I listen to your guys' podcast probably more than most, but, um, uh, but I listen to a, a lot of different climbing podcasts and, and other podcasts about all sorts of other things. And it, it's pretty cool that we have you know, all these different ways of getting across that information. But I'd say it's funny to kind of parallel the two, you know, because we joke yeah. about not people not having an attention span for, for more than 60 seconds, but then also can listen to a three hour podcast. And I always find that. Well, interesting. It's yeah. So. I mean, it's fascinating that, that Rogan is, he's the king of podcasting, like a hundred percent. And he's a three hour, you know, just rambling podcast. And <laughs> it, yeah. Exactly. I, it is fascinating that like that it, you know, it broke this mold that we thought was in place so so staunchly um, to have because yeah, it's uh, you know, and one of the things that the run out we get complaints that sometimes they're not long enough, and I'm like, dude, they're plenty yeah. long, you know, or yeah. they're longer, you know, we're like okay, yeah. you know, so it's, it is fascinating the two things side by side, the two trends, totally. if you will, side by side. Yeah, I mean, I think when we're inundated by such instant gratification with social media that. I feel like sometimes we learn, for, yearn for like the longer form, you know, where we really feel like we, we get invited into this room and that we feel like a part of this long, long conversation, you know? And I think especially during COVID where we weren't communicating with as many people in that regard, I think it was just, it felt comforting in a way to be able to feel like you're a part of this longer conversation with, with, with people that you, you don't often get to share perspectives with. Well, Carlo, we've got to wrap this up because we want to uh, keep our podcast listeners slightly agitated that we're not going longer. Um, we can't give them too much <laughs> content. Or, more. Yeah, we, we need, them, of course, we need of course. them in a state of hunger. So aside from not joining TikTok, <laughs> what's, uh, what's next on your agenda? What, what's your, your next project that you got your eyes on? Tomorrow, I'm flying to Switzerland, um, and I'll be there for 10 days to try hard boulders. Um, and then I'm going to Fontainebleau as well after that to, to boulder with a group of friends. So it's a little bit more of an enjoyable trip on some front for me. But I also like, I've always wanted to kind of blend all styles in one season. So being able to climb something in the 515 range, sport climbing, and then, uh, you know, a mid to hard grade 514 trad climb. Um, and then also try to pair that with hard bouldering all in the same season has been like a goal of mine for a long time. And I don't know where I'm at physically. Like I haven't really climbed much in the last week since doing, since doing magic line. And I basically just sat on a, you know, a hundred foot lie back with, you know, pretty good holds for, for two weeks. So who knows, who knows what's going to happen. Um, but I'm, I'm just excited to kind of like dive right back into hard bouldering and, and just kind of see where I'm at and see what I can do. So 
that's next on my list. And then, you know, obviously that kind of goes hand in hand with continuing to maintain operations here at the gym and um, trying to develop classes and programs and other things for, for, for people at the gym. And now that COVID's kind of wrapping up or it feels like we're, we're getting closer to the end here, we're definitely psyched to, to start working on more community events here. On today's final bit, we feature a blast from the past. In the mid-90s, three SoCal climbers put out a blistering album of skate, or climber punk under the moniker 30 foot whipper featured on a couple skate punk compilations in one tune winding up in masters of stone five the album nonetheless disappeared into obscurity with not a digital whisper to be found on the internet luckily for you dear listener though chipped and scratched my 30 foot whipper cd purchased circa 1996 in rock creation la survives this track the climbiest of them all is a ripping hard rock ode to joshua tree just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. 
I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 it's, no. no. Patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at Patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot, dot com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.